Philippians chapter 3. Flip back another few more pages there and get uh, back towards the front of your Bible from where you just were in Timothy. And here we are in Philippians chapter 3. And this evening we're ready to begin this third chapter. Uh, This is the part of the very encouraging letter that Paul wrote to the church at Philippi. And I'm not sure if you remember uh, what was said in the very first sermon of this, of this series. But I told you then what is the theme of the book of Philippians, and it was written to encourage the church to live a life of joy and contentment. In this third chapter, Paul comes back to that theme. Now, throughout chapters 1 and 2, uh, the apostle has spoken of things that would discourage or things that he knew would discourage these Christians and would take away their joy, and he showed them how that they could overcome those discouragements. If it's his prison experience, if that's something that discouraged them, then he wanted them to know that all of these things had worked out for the furtherance of the gospel. If it's other Christians who speak out in contention and make the ministry very difficult for him, he said, give praise in that also. Thank God, because there are some who are still faithful and they do speak with a heart of love. If it's their personal tendency to be jealous of one another, then he points them to the example of Christ. And he speaks about how Christ was a, a, uh, humbled himself and came to this earth. And so he says, use that as an example of godly humility. And should they become uh, unsettled and fearful because of persecution? He says, joy in that also. Because when you're persecuted, you know that that is proof of your salvation. And so Paul thinks of these many different things that would upset them, that would rob them of their joy, and he comes up with an answer for each of their discouragements. Well, now we come to chapter 3, and Paul returns to the purpose. He's given us examples. He's talked about his personal testimony. He's spoken of working out our salvation. He's given us examples of people who have lived good Christian lives, the ones that he had uh, type of life that he had spoken about in chapter 2. He spoke of uh, Epaphroditus and Timothy and gave them as examples. And so now he comes back to the theme of joy. Now this evening we're going to consider just the first verse of uh, chapter 3, and really we're just going to take one small part of this verse. Uh, so we have just a short verse here to read, and then we'll, we'll pray and we'll ask God's blessing on our, on our sermon tonight. If you'd stand, please, let's just look at the third chapter, verse number 1. He says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me, indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the time you've given us to gather tonight. Lord, help us as we look into your word that we would uh, see things here that the Apostle Paul has written that are for our learning and for our admonition. And then, Lord, we do want to uh, repeat what we've talked about as far as our president's concerned. We do ask your blessings upon his administration. Guide him, Lord, and, and may he be faithful to the principles that America has been built upon and upon uh, uh, godly principles of morality as well. So bless in this message tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Paul begins chapter number 3 with the word finally. Now that looks like Paul is about ready to sum up this letter and close it very quickly. But the meaning of the word finally here is really not what we think. It's not really finally. Now sometimes you hear me say finally and... Uh, in my messages, uh, when I say that, uh, people start to rustle 
their pages and start to put up their Bibles and you hear that wave of, of things that are going on, little sounds and papers rustling as, as uh, they get put up when I talk about saying finally. But after a little while, you learn that when I said finally, I didn't really mean finally, that there's more to go. A few weeks ago, uh, after a Sunday morning sermon, Lauren told me that the last point of my sermon was too long. She said, people get all excited because you get to the third point and they think you're going to be finished and then you take forever to finish. Well, that's sort of what Paul's doing right here. He says, finally, but really what he means here is just, here comes the rest of my message. And the rest of the message is just as long as the first part of the message. Now, you'll notice in the last sentence of the first verse, he says, to write the same things to you, to me indeed is not grievous, but for you it is safe. And that simply means that he's not troubled or bored, that he has to go back over the very same things that he talked about again. And he knows, though, that this is for their good. It's, for, it's a safeguard against all these discouragements that they face. And much of our preaching is that. It's, it's going over and over again, plowed ground, things that we've already talked about. And so we continue to uh, repeat things about the doctrines of the faith, about faithful service, and about Christian living. And well, we should do that because the devil's favorite tool, tool is to try to snatch the Word of God out of our minds. Get us away from thinking about God's Word. And so he puts our mind upon other things to think about other things rather than what God has to say. So Paul has no difficulty going back to this theme once again of joy in the life of a Christian. Now that's what I want to talk about tonight. Paul says, finally, my brethren... Rejoice in the Lord. How do we do that? Well, I want to give you three suggestions tonight that will help you to rejoice in the Lord. Number one, number one is to know your salvation. Now, we think, well, that's a pretty obvious thing to say, know your salvation. No one could possibly rejoice in the Lord unless they know that they're saved. And truer words could never be spoken because uh, although God is the benefactor and God does so many wonderful things for us, he, he provides everything that all people receive. And yet for those who don't really know him as the Savior, God is their worst nightmare. Now they haven't yet come to the realization of that because they think that somehow that God's love will prevent his justice. And they don't understand that a time is coming when they will be judged and they'll be punished for the lives that they've lived. God will punish for sin. And the proof of that is what we read in the uh, second chapter when Paul says that there will be a time when all must bow their knees before Jesus and they must confess him as Lord. Now, there most people or many people think that they're all different kinds of paths to God. And so there's really not a need to trust Christ as Savior. But these people are going to be judged accordingly. They'll be punished for their unbelief despite what they think about this beneficial God that they serve or benevolent God that they serve. So it's true and it's obvious or it should be that to rejoice in the Lord, you must know that you're saved, that your sins have been forgiven, that you are on your way to heaven. Well, that is really, though, one of the primary areas that Satan attacks. Now, he attacks us in two ways. The first one is this, that Satan will offer false assurance. Peter wrote in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. 
I was watching a TV preacher not long ago, and after his broadcast, he made a statement. He said, if you want to be saved, just kneel down and say, I believe that you died to save me. Jesus, I believe you died to save me. I believe in you. And then he concluded it by saying, if you said that prayer, I believe that you're born again. You are a child of God. Well, the last part of that statement is true. You are a child of God. You're born again only if the first part of the statement is true. And that is, have you truly believed? Have you truly received Christ as your Savior? And if you have, there will be a change that accompanies that confession. If there is real faith there, there'll be a demonstration of faith because your life will begin to produce fruit. And the unfortunate problem with so many who preach only believe is that they leave out the other part to preach real repentance from sin, a change of direction in a person's life, and a demonstration that their faith is really real. And the change of direction is from works of righteousness that always what, what is produced in the life of unbeliever. It's a change from that to a demonstration of righteousness, which is always the fruits of a person who has really been born again. James wrote, James wrote this in James chapter 2, Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. So real faith, real reception of Christ as, of Christ as Savior, will produce good works. Now, what does Satan do with people who have made a profession, and they've signed their card, they've walked the church aisle. What does he do with them in order to keep them thinking that they're saved? One of the things that he does is he makes them look back on the experience of that profession rather than upon the demonstration of faith. And so they have their reliance or their hope in the wrong thing. And the Bible makes it very clear that our profession is not the proof of our salvation. The proof of our salvation is in the righteous fruit that we produce. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. So the evidence of salvation is not what you say with your mouth. Now, certainly we need to confess. The Bible says we need to confess our, our, uh, that we are Christians and, and tell people that we are. But that confession is to be made out of a true heart of righteousness that has been changed. And there really is a demonstration with the production of fruit. And that fruit is the way that you make your calling and your election sure. Now, I want to emphasize once again here, though, that this takes place because of a change of heart. You see, it is possible that people can live moral lives. People can live uh, by very high ethical standards. They can be upright in their lives. And there are many, many good moral people out there who have not received Christ as their Savior. Now, some of them are religious and some of them aren't. I'm not going to spend any time tonight talking about the ones that aren't religious because they really don't make a confession of of Christ at all. But what about those people that are very religious? They live morally and they are upright and so they think that they're saved. Well, these are people that depend upon their morality and various other things without understanding that their righteousness really doesn't count. 
I mean, it's Christ's righteousness. It's Christ's obedience that's acceptable to God. And so their heart hasn't really been changed, and their dependence is in the wrong thing. So these are people that need to come humbly before God and admit that everything that they do is worthless in God's eyes, that they fall short of the standard that God demands. They have nothing in their lives to offer God, and none of us do before we're saved. Just like the songwriter said, In my hand no price I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. And then we could go on and we could think about other ways, different ways that Satan offers false assurance. It may be that someone looks back on a time that they were baptized. And I even know people that rely upon the fact that they were baptized as babies. And they uh, think about confirmation and they think about other sacraments that are kept. And so basically they think they're saved because they've carried out some kind of religious function. And so that must be proof of their salvation. Well, none of that works. You cannot rejoice in the Lord until you know without doubt that you're truly saved. A transformation has to have taken place in which you put all of your confidence in Christ and you put none in yourself. We'll talk about that when we get down to verse number 3. You might want to glance down there just a second that Paul says that a true Christian is one who puts no confidence in the flesh. So Satan comes and he offers false assurance. But the way to know that you really are saved is do you produce any kind of real fruit for Christ in your life? There is no conversion without commitment. Now, secondly, uh, Satan attacks in another way. He attacks assurance itself. Now, this is the opposite tactic of what we're talking about just before. To the unregenerate, Satan will try to build a false assurance. He offers assurance, but it's a false assurance, and he puts that into place as a substitute. But for those that are truly regenerate, he tries to attack their assurance. He he tries to wear it down and to tear it down. Now, this is a, a Christian who many times is defeated by his unworthiness. It's a person who struggles with sin, and he thinks because he struggles with sin that surely he can't be saved. Well, the truth of the matter is that if you've never come to the place that you realize that you are in total abject unworthiness, that you never could be saved. The remedy for this is to clearly understand that Christ is the one who is your worthiness. It's never dependent upon you at any time. It's always Christ's worthiness. There are some people that we know that uh, will refuse the Lord's Supper because they don't want to take it. They feel like they're unworthy. And so if they do, they think they're going to call down the wrath of God upon them like uh, happened to the Corinthian church when they are, uh, some of their lives were taken from them because they took the Lord's Supper wrongly. Satan loves to see you in that position because he wants to bring you to the place that you forget the promise that God has made. Now, though you sin... The scriptures are clear about this. It says that if you will confess that sin, that uh, God, Christ, is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. There are some people who want to take that scripture out of 1 John and they want to apply it to lost people. And there is somewhat of an application for lost people, but primarily John is talking about saved people there. You see, we don't repent and confess just one time in our lives not just at our initial salvation, but every day that we live for the Lord has to be a time of confession, repentance from our sin, because we do that in order to maintain our fellowship with Christ. So if you 
believe that scripture in 1 John, then you know without doubt that you stand pure before God because the scripture promises that God has cleansed you from your sins. So don't let Satan have success when he begins to attack your assurance. I mean, if you go to the Lord in prayer uh, with doubt in your mind about the, with, uh, over the very foundation, the, the reason that you can go to him in prayer, your salvation, that relationship that you have with the Lord, if you have doubts about that, then you'll never be effective in your prayer life and you'll never be able to build upon the foundation of faith in your life. And so if that foundation is shaky, you can't build the building of the Christian life. So the solution for a child of God is to claim the promises of the word. So when you have sorrow for sin, when you have conviction of sin, and even when you have punishment for sin, chastisement, all of those are proofs of assurance. So if you want to rejoice in the Lord, the first thing is to know your salvation. Have that assurance that you truly are a child of God. Now the second thing that you need is to know your relation. Now, number one is to know your salvation. Number two is to know your relation. Now, jump back up there to verse 15 in chapter 2. There it says that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God. And you might want to underline the sons of God right there, without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom ye shine as lights in the world. Our relation is that we are sons of God. John wrote in 1 John 3, verse 1, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Now, never forget that, because we have a relationship with God. We are sons, and it's a relationship that can never be broken. You know, I pity people who believe that salvation can be lost. I mean, there are some who believe that God would just cast us off, even though we are his children. But this relationship that we have is so strong that God would as soon cast off his only begotten son, that Jesus would no longer be the eternal son of God. That is just as likely as it is for God to cast you off who are a believer in him. Now, there's a lot of confusion over things that will bring us joy and what the meaning of joy really is. Now, some people try to equate joy with happiness. I want to point out to you quickly Uh, two things that that relate to the differences between joy and happiness and how our relationship with God is defining in that distinction. Now, the first one is that circumstances should not shape your faith. Our English word happiness is a translation of the Latin word fortuna. Now, that sounds like fortune. It comes from about the same word, and happiness is related to good fortune. Fortune comes from a word that means chance. And so people are happy when circumstances work out favorably, when they have good fortune. So people are happy when things work out the way that they want them to work out. Well, it would be very hard for us to look at what Paul wrote here in Philippians and say that he's happy because of circumstances. You mean Paul had great faith because things are working out with good fortune? Well, that that would be hard to prove by these scriptures. We know that Paul is sitting there writing this letter from a a prison cell at Philippi. He never desired prison, not for the sake of prison. He may have been happy that he could suffer, you know, shame for for Christ's sake. And, And the Bible does say that kind of thing can bring happiness into a Christian's life. But it's not circumstances that surround him that shapes his faith. He's there because of his faith. 
And he writes with joy rather than happiness. Now, joy is a supernatural delight in God, and it's not dependent upon good or bad fortune. We rejoice because we have a relationship with God, and that relationship can never be affected by anything that happens or doesn't happen in our lives. So that's not a determining factor for us. Circumstances can't shape our faith. You see, we don't trust God because God does good things for us. God does good things for us because we trust him. And faith is not dependent upon things. It's always dependent upon Christ. So even when we think that there are things that are working out bad for us, God promises that all those things will actually work out for good. Circumstances don't shape our faith. Second thing about this is that circumstances should not shake your faith. Now, here we're talking about the joy of relationships, but there are many, or of a relationship rather, but there are many Christians who never experienced that joy. I mean, they may have had it one time. They got saved and they had the joy of receiving Christ, but after so long a time, that, that joy that they had seems like a far-off distant memory. So they're dour, they're sour, and that's because they're depressed and despondent. Now, it might be because they lost a job might be because there are family problems or there are financial problems. Sometimes uh, Christians lose their joy because they've been looking at other people. And somebody in the church has let them down. Could be a minister, could be a friend, could be Sunday school teacher, deacon. It doesn't matter, but they've been let down by someone. Well, circumstances should not shake our faith. And the reason is that none of those things changes the relationship that we have with God. We're sons of God. So no matter how bleak that a picture might, the picture may be for us, no matter how hard that life may seem, we're still God's children. You know, I've, I've been blessed in my life not to really have any extended times of depression. Uh, and, and, you know, of course, I'm not perfect, and, and uh, the secret of avoiding depression is not because I figured out how to do all of this and I'm some kind of epitome of holiness. I have no other secret than one thing, and that is that every bad thing that happens to me, I've never seen a time when God ultimately failed me. I look at God's track record, and I never see a time truly where I could say, I'm disappointed in God. Every experience that God brings us through is always proof of his faithfulness. So faith can't be shaken when you know that you're a son of God, because God always has your best welfare in mind. So you see here, what we're talking about is that experiencing joy is achieved by taking God's prescription. Paul's giving some advice on a prescription for joy. If you're sick, you go to the doctor and he may give you a prescription and say, here's some medicine for you to take. Or he may say, well, there's some changes that you need to make. There's some things you need to do differently. And so if you want to feel better, you take the prescription. And this is exactly what Paul is doing. If you want that joy in your life, take his advice. Take the prescription. Now, two of those things he tells us here. Uh, here's how you achieve joy. Know about your salvation. Know for sure you're on your way to heaven. That ought to be a reason to rejoice. Know the relationship that you have with God. If you can't rejoice in that, what can you rejoice in? Knowing that you are truly a son of God. That's part of the prescription. But there's one other thing that Paul gives us as a, as a reason to rejoice. Number three is to know your position. And now I'm talking about the things that you believe. Now, have you noticed that although the theme of Philippians is joy and contentment, 
that Paul spends a lot of time in this book talking about doctrine. That's the same M.O. that Paul has in, in each of his epistles. He always has something that he wants to present on the practical side, but it's always preceded by a doctrinal side. There's, there's value in knowing your doctrine. Know what you believe. Be firm in what you believe. Have a foundation to build your joy upon. Now, that, that only seems like a logical conclusion to me. I mean, if you're going to have confidence in someone, you, you need to know them in the best way possible. You're not going to put your confidence and your trust in somebody that you really don't know very well. And the same thing is true with Christians. If you really don't know Christ very well, if you don't have that closeness with him, if you don't know the doctrines of his word that explains who he is, what he is, what he's done, if you don't know that, you can't have all the confidence that you need to have in him. And so it's very important that we know our doctrine. And yet, do you know that there are many churches that have abandoned the very thing that will give their people joy? Now, they're looking for the happiness, but they don't understand the real principle of joy. And so they have abandoned the very thing that the Word of God says that you build the foundation of your joy upon. And so you find many Christians that have built their churches on, or churches are, are built, or their lives are built on other things rather than the true doctrines of the Word of God. Now, a case in point, I think, is with charismatic churches. Charismatic churches most of the time, build their churches on emotionalism. What's real is what you feel. And if you don't feel it, then there's that disappointment, there's despondency there. If you can't experience all these feelings, then you really don't have the fullness of Christ. And and, uh, being a Christian and and having joy is always an emotional response that you have. You know, I was as much told that by a a very nice charismatic lady, lady that I once knew. She told me, uh, you know, she, she likened uh, all the things that she was looking for in her life, the emotional experiences, she likened that to a great feast. And the great feast was being able to speak in tongues and have sign gifts of the Spirit. And so she said to me, she said, you Baptists, you have a whole feast that's spread before you. The whole table is spread, and you're content to eat the crumbs that fall underneath the table. In other words... If you don't have the emotions, then you haven't really experienced Christ. Well, let's take a step back and let's look at the charismatic movement. And what do we find there? Well, we find a a movement and we find churches that are devoid of doctrine. Sound doctrine is abandoned in favor of searching for these gifts that really no longer exist. And so when the emotions fail, faith fails. And that's because their faith is tied to the emotions and their joy is tied to those emotions. I've met people in charismatic churches that aren't happy. They're not joyful. They are truly saved people. They've repented of their sins. They believed in Christ. They're a little bit confused, but but, uh, they're believers in Christ. But they didn't experience the tongues. I mean, they, they didn't get that. They didn't go through that emotional experience. And so now they think that they're some kind of inferior Christian because they don't have that. Joy comes from correct thinking. Correct thinking on the doctrines of God's word. Here's what David said concerning the relationship of doctrine to joy. He said, The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The Jewish people really learned how to trust God's word, and they made that a principle uh, to live by. And one of the things that they did was 
to put a frontlet between their eyes. Now, I'll explain that in just a moment, but they were very misguided in that. Uh, uh, they, they realized that they were to live by the word of God. You may remember that uh, I have a picture here that I brought back from Israel, and this was a picture taken at the uh, western wall there. And you see this Orthodox Jewish man with that little box on his head. And that's called the frontlet. And there in that little box, they would put scripture in that. And so the Jews did that to remind them that their lives were to be lived and to be consumed with God's word. God's word is to guide them. Now, they would uh, take that word and put it on their head. And they knew that if they paid attention and lived by the word, then the fullness of life would be theirs by obeying God's commands. Now, I did hear something interesting the other day about this, that someone said that that is the original Facebook. And, and they, actually, the person made a pretty good point. He said, this is the original Facebook. He said, I don't use Facebook. I don't know anything about that. Other people have told me. But he said, Facebook has three principles to it. Number one is, who am I? Number two is, what am I doing? And number three is, I want to have a relationship with you. And he said, that's the original Facebook right here. That's what God says, what his word says. Who am I? Here's what I'm doing. And I want to have a relationship with you. That part of it was pretty good anyway. But there are three instances that we find in the uh, Old Testament where God told people to wear the scriptures in a symbolic fashion. And each of the passages that, that talks about this deals with a particular doctrine that the people are to remember. The first one is in Exodus chapter 13. And there it says, And it shall be for a sign unto thee upon thine hand, and for a memorial between thine eyes, that the Lord's law may be in thy mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord brought thee out of Egypt. And the subject under consideration in that verse is the Passover. Now, unfortunately, the Jews of Jesus' time and modern-day Orthodox Jews have misunderstood that literal command or understood it as a literal command that what they need to do is to make these little boxes and put them on their forehead. When really what God was saying to them is this is a symbolic thing. You're to keep those precepts before you. Uh, these things are to be taught by parents to their children. And, and these things are to be so close to you that you really do understand that, that you are to live by that. It, and it's as if this thing was right between your eyes. Well, in this particular instance, the, in, in Exodus chapter 13, the doctrine that's taught here is the remission of sins by the blood. As I said, the, the subject there is Passover. The children of Israel were delivered from the death angel because they had applied the blood. They were covered by the blood of the Lamb. And that, of course, is symbolic that Christ's blood would be poured out. Christ's blood would wash their sins away. They had no protection unless they were under the blood. God's wrath would be upon them. The death angel would kill the firstborn if that blood wasn't there. Now, folks, that is a cardinal Christian doctrine. The blood atonement of Jesus Christ. That is an absolutely essential doctrine. And yet there are people that are very, very confused about this. Probably more confused over this particular doctrine than any other doctrine in the Word of God. And they're confused because what they think is that they can mix their works in with the blood of Christ. And that's what's going to save them, and that'll make them safe. But if Moses had intended to, to teach a lesson about mixing your faith with your works in order to be saved, then God would have given him the Ten Commandments before he gave him the Passover. And he would have said, here's what you need to do. Smear a little blood on the doorpost, but then take the Ten Commandments and nail them up there too. 
But God didn't do that. It's not the commandments. It's not doing things that will ever save us. It's the blood of Jesus Christ. But what is it that denominations teach today? They do teach that some element of man's work has to be mixed in with the blood. And so sacraments are kept. Church membership is added to that. Good deeds are required. None of that is the teaching of the Scripture. Salvation and joy cannot be achieved by adding anything to Christ's blood. I mean, even when you talk about faith, and, and some people are confused about, about that. Many of the fundamentalists are confused about that, that faith is something that has to be added. You don't add anything to the blood of Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient to wash away our sins. And the Bible teaches that even our faith is a gift of God. Now, the second instance of the command is in Deuteronomy chapter 6. This one you're probably all familiar with. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. The doctrine that's being taught in that scripture is our responsibility toward God. There's that little chorus that we sing on Wednesday nights sometimes, Uh, that tells the truth of this passage. It says, And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy soul. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy might. Love the Lord thy God. And that is our responsibility. Love God supremely. Every faculty of our being, our minds, our souls, our heart, everything about us belongs to the Lord. And joy is expressed in our love for God. Then the last time that that command is given is in Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 18. And there it says, Therefore you shall lay up these words in your heart and in your soul and bind them for a sign upon your hand that they may be frontlets between your eyes. And that command is a reference. The doctrine here is the requirement of obedience. Deuteronomy chapter 11 is talking about how God would bless his people as a nation and then also how he would bless them as individuals. And the key to it all was that they would obey his commandments. Now, that's the very same thing that's taught by Jesus in John fourteen twenty one. He said, He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. Now, what is the greatest joy for a Christian. I didn't put a place on your listening sheet to write this down, but you probably ought to make a a note of this. The greatest joy of a Christian is one simple principle, to be loved by God, to be loved by God. And here's what the Word of God says, that you will be able to feel the presence of God in a particular way. How do you feel God's presence? Well, he promises that if you obey his commandments... If you live the way he wants you to live as a Christian, you will feel the presence of God and thereby you will feel the love of God. Now, if you feel the presence of God in your life, what could make you rejoice more than that? What could make you happier than knowing that God is in your life? And so here is the prescription that Paul gives us for joy. Know your salvation, know your relation 
know your position. Make sure that you've got a good handle on God's word and that you understand because the more that you know about him, the more you'll rejoice in the God of your salvation. That's a prescription for joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for each one who's been with us tonight to study your word. Lord, we, we seek that joy in our lives. Help us to understand that we don't build joy and have joy based upon circumstances and things that are going on around us. Real joy is found in knowing you, knowing about our relation, knowing our salvation, and knowing the, the doctrines of your word that we build that solid foundation of faith and joy upon. Bless your people tonight, Lord, as we sing an invitation hymn. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.